0: Welcome to the Sacramentalist a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts, I'm Father Miles Hickson and I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today we continue our discussion on Catholic social teaching by turning our attention to the issues of economics. Surely one of our least controversial topics, wouldn't you say Father Wesley? <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, before we turn to our topic to te- today, um Let me just mention a few upcoming things if these issues of economics and Catholic social teaching interest you. First, we are going to be interviewing a guest about this topic who's written a book, and we're very excited for him to be on the podcast, but we're going to keep his name um, revealed for now. We might be alluding to something he'll be talking about here in a little while, but please stay tuned for when that interview comes out. Uh, But also, our own Father Creighton McElveen, he's going to be giving a talk Uh, on the evening of April 26th, which is the day that this podcast, this episode is released. So this evening, if you're listening in the morning of the 26th, make sure you tune in if you're a Patreon member. And it's going to be on John Paul II's papal encyclical laborium exertion. And to attend, as we said, you need to be a Patreon member and you can contact us or mostly Father Wesley. He's always the one who sends out the Zoom links and we'll make sure you're a part of that. You're not going to want to miss it. Father Creighton is pretty passionate about this topic, and it's going to be a really good discussion. And I think um, for many of us who have raised in conservative Christianity in America, it might stretch us a little and have us look outside, just like this episode will in line with Catholic social teaching. So with those few announcements, Father Wesley, take us into some um, basic principles of economics from a Catholic standpoint.
1: Yeah, so I think we begin with an understanding that economics— really are a kind of applied anthropology. And so the way that we organize ourselves uh, when it comes to economic arrangements will have an assumed understanding of what a human person is, what we were made for, and all of those things kind of wrapped up in it. Now, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2426, the primary goal of economic activity is to provide for the needs of human beings. Economic life is not meant solely to multiply goods produced and increase profit or power. It is ordered first of all to the service of persons, of the whole man, and of the entire human community. Economic activity, conducted according to its proper method, is to be exercised within the limits of the moral order in keeping with social justice so as to correspond to God's plan for man." So just like we talked about in previous episodes the idea of human rights being important insofar as they're a way for us to recognize the other um, as significant as someone who deserves to be, really, according to this understanding, economics do the same thing. Um, They are a way for us to serve others, not to accumulate power or things. So a few principles that undergird our understanding of economic arrangements, no matter where we find ourselves, um, because we might find ourselves in different places, um, different local economies, different national economies, different um, organizations, and things like that. Um, But first is that humanity must precede market abstractions. And we'll talk about this in in a little while, but we don't get to sacrifice humans on the altar of economic profit or convenience. And unfortunately, this is something that's incentivized in many ways by our current system. So we need to place the human over things, over money. And building off that, this means that workers have to be respected. St. Joseph the worker, ora pro nobis. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, Paragraph 2428 says the primordial value of labor stems from man himself, its author, and its beneficiary. Work is for man, not man for work. Everyone should be able to draw from the work from work the means of providing for his life and that of his family and of serving the human community. And so, an extension of this is that labor must be cared for. Paragraph 2434 a just wage. Is the, is the legitimate fruit of work. To refuse or withhold it can be a grave injustice. So the impetus really is to care for employees and workers and to make sure that they can provide for themselves. Third, whatever economic system we inhabit, we should be able to agree that the state has a positive role to play in that system. So the Catechism goes on to say that the state should... First, provide a space to make economic exchanges possible. So this includes uh, ensuring things like property, freedom, currency, and public services. It should also guarantee security for economic participants and also encourage efficient and honest work. The two sort of go hand in hand there. Um, If efficient and honest work can, can be done in a way that will generally be treated fairly, then it should be engaged in, and there's more of an incentive for workers to engage in that rather than turning to other kinds of means that might not be as good for them. And finally, the state should, in the context of relations between capital and labor, advocate for human rights. And the catechism does place the burden primarily on individuals and groups like unions, for example, in doing this, but the government has to enable their voices to be heard, it has to protect those voices, and it has to act on information responsibly.
0: Yeah, so I think that when you have this orientation towards the human person, what it calls for is a sacrificial economic system for the individual, and one in which— Kind of, If we go back to this first episode of the season, or one of the first where we went through the seven principles, this notion of solidarity, that when we're in the market, the market is not a dog-eat-dog kind of concept for us to just gain, 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 which, as you said, an incentive for greed or to use people for the sake of personal greed, but it is for the sake of the other, so a sacrificial economic system, which, if you're interested in reading about that, go read St. Basil's On Social Justice, which is really a treatise on ancient economics, where he preaches these sermons— to his congregation, to these various parishes that he's pastoring as bishop in Caesarea. And he is saying that you as an individual, especially if you have more, you have a moral obligation to provide for the lesser. Now, we live in a context where the government provides certain social services. And so maybe one practical application for us is not being as begrudging when taxes are taken out for the sake of helping others it's a sacrificial economic system because if you can understand that you're in solidarity with your neighbor and that you're here to help your neighbor, I know that's a bit simplistic, but that's kind of a primary point to orient towards the person rather than orient towards profit. And I'm not even sure that that kind of basic uh, differentiation is often thought about in many Christian circles. Sometimes we just take for granted our economic system, whatever that may be, like you said, either nationally, locally, or, or at the state level, and we just go with it. But there's even foundational philosophical differences that the Christian must be understanding is how they spend their dollar, or their pound, or whatever you have out there.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that point about taxes is a good one to make, because taxes, as annoying as they are, as frustrating as they can be, uh, are a recognition of our interdependence and interconnectedness, and so when I'm paying taxes and I'm paying for roads and I'm paying for public education and I'm paying for you know whatever else it is that that my money is being used for, uh, there is a sort of common and public good there that's being created that I am both directly and indirectly benefiting from. But but in the indirectly benefiting from, like I'm I'm benefiting because the more educated. Uh, people there are who can accomplish various jobs and uh, advance the common good then I'm that's that's good for me and so uh, so yeah I think it's important for us to realize that um, and of course uh, there there is probably a reason that uh, more anti-tax sentiment comes out of a more individualistic uh, sort of political scheme. Um, in that it downplays that that interconnectedness. Um, i'm I'm reminded of when um, President Obama uh, said, um when he was talking about people who build successful businesses, you didn't build that by yourself, and it caused a lot of outrage among, you know some more conservative leaning people. But I mean, really, I think he's completely
0: correct in in saying that. And I don't think it means we can't critique what the government necessarily does with our taxes, right. or especially locally. What it means is that we should uh, work at the local level. We'll talk about that in a minute as well, and it's also been something we've talked about in the seven principles. Uh, work to see taxes go in the right direction, where we want to see them go. Uh, it's That's a larger conversation. We could have a whole episode on tax and should Christians evade taxes, which is the answer is no, but <laughs> there's a lot out there who, who would want to do that or opt out of Social Security or something like this. So, so sacrificial economic system, and is that not something that I have a hard time reading our Lord's words and, and Paul's comments in, in the epistles and not walking away from kind of this outpouring of an economic system. Is your wealth not for the sake of others? And is if once you have that orientation, um, it, it becomes very different. How do I put this? It becomes, I think, difficult to look at the current systems in the world and just wholesale accept them, which leads mm-hmm. us to our next point, Father Wesley.
1: Yes. So what we wanted to do is uh, to, to briefly discuss kind of where we are right now as far as our economic system, which I think we would uh, label as capitalist, and uh, talk about some of the critiques of that system from the perspective of Catholic social teaching, and then discuss briefly uh, the sort of Catholic social teachings alternative, which is a, a system called distributism. So capitalism is uh, has a somewhat tenuous relationship with Catholic social teaching. So Pope John Paul II uh, illustrates the complex relationship that exists between the two in Centesimus Annus, which is in paragraph 42. um, He says, if by capitalism is meant an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property and the resulting responsibility for the means of production as well as free human creativity in the economic sector, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative, even though it would perhaps be more appropriate to speak of a business economy, market economy, or simply free economy. But if by capitalism is meant a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed within a strong judicial framework, which places it at the service of human freedom in its totality, and which sees it as a particular aspect of that freedom, the core of which is ethical and religious, then the reply is certainly negative." So I think his, his words of warning there were appropriate when he wrote them, but they're even more appropriate now in the 21st century, um, and so we have reasons, three main reasons, I think, to be suspicious of modern, secular capitalism. So the first is a false narrative of progress. So capitalism inculcates a narrative of progress that ties very well into the larger story of modernism. We like to pretend things are getting better. A good example of this might be the author Steven Pinker, who wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he made the argument that we as humans have become less violent, Post Enlightenment. Yet, as we mentioned in the pro-life episode, our culture is better, really, not at being less violent, but at hiding violence. So we talked about drone, drone strikes, uh, gentrification. Uh, we might think of waste dumping in minority communities or developing countries that don't have the same kind of visibility as um, sort of you know modern Western communities might. So, uh, theologian David Bentley Hart in First Things, offered a really persuasive critique of Pinker's thesis and those who would perpetuate this myth of progress. So he says, and I think he's pretty right here, he says, of course, modern societies have reduced certain kinds of brutality, cruelty, and injustice. Modern technology makes it far easier to control crime. We have weapons both too terrifying to use in open combat and so precise that we can kill at great distances without great armies out of sight and mind. We have succeeded at reforming our own nations internally in ways that make them ever more comfortable, less threatening, and more complacent. Our prison system is barbaric but not overly sadistic, and our our more draconian laws rarely inconvenience the affluent among us. We have learned to exploit the labor and resources of poorer peoples not by enslaving them, but merely by making them beneficiaries of globalization." So the violence that we commit is more sanitized, it's subtler, and less inconvenient than that committed by our forebears. And so capitalism really does participate in this fictitious narrative in that it always dangles a carrot of utopia in front of us, urging us forward with exhortations to lessen restrictions on businesses and corporations, lessen obligations towards workers, obligations towards the environment, etc.
0: And I think one of the myths that must go along with this is that human beings, apart from any sort of direct intervention, whether by state or religion or or what have you, are willing to move towards the right progress, right? And so I think that a complete uh, laissez-faire economic system just assumes that people are kind of, it's kind of a Pelagian model, is it not? People are kind of good, and they'll ultimately do the right thing, and they will build the right world. And... While the extreme, as we'll say, is, is not right, which is kind of a totalitarian state of communism, there, there, we have to recognize as, as Christians that that's just not true, that we do have the curvus and say, the turn towards sin and of ourself. And so inevitably, businesses are going to exploit people. Inevitably, markets are going to try and put the quote-unquote um, violence out of, out of mind, out of sight, as David Bentley Hart said. And so, a recognition of human person as both dignified, but also as human people as sinful, makes a kind of true free capitalist system a hard thing for us to to envision working long term really well.
1: And that brings us to the second reason that we can should be suspicious of of capitalism as it currently exists, which is that really. Capitalism encourages a kind of human sacrifice and ongoing injustice. Um, Capitalism, as an ideology, makes it very easy for us to see the other as a means to an end, so then we can sacrifice them. A good example of this is the novel The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, and there's a scene where the workers who work in a meatpacking plant are working, and one of them gets his arm stuck in the meat shredder, and, and it rips his arm off and, and, you know, his arm goes into the, the meat that's being packaged. And here you kind of have the the imagery that the worker is really no different than the animal that's being slaughtered, you know, according to the to the system. Um, and they're being sort of sucked in by the, the machine. So while we, sanit- while we have sanitized our violence, it still exists, and it's often displaced into poorer communities here in the United States or in developing countries. So Pope Francis is pretty clear in Evangelii Gaudium that this aspect of capitalism is just unacceptable. He says, Just as the commandment, thou shalt not kill, sets a clear limit in order to safeguard the value of human life, today we also have to say thou shalt not kill to an economy of exclusion and inequality. Such an economy kills. A new tyranny is thus born invisible and often virtual, which unilaterally and relentlessly imposes its own laws and rules. To all this, we can add widespread corruption and self-serving tax evasion, which has taken on worldwide dimensions. The thirst for power and possessions knows no limits. And finally, when we're talking about the dangers of capitalism... We have the problem of consumerism. So not only does capitalism do a sort of violence to the poor, but also it can do a violence to those of us who maybe don't fall into the category of exploited persons in that it shapes and really warps the way that we perceive the world. And we see this in our context when we become purely consumers. So we might think of the book um, Desiring the Kingdom by James K.A. Smith, where he proposes at the beginning that we pretend for a moment that we're Martian anthropologists who have come to study humans, and he sets this a kind of lengthy description of a trip to a shopping mall. You know, you go to this cathedral and you walk in and there's all this kind of natural lighting coming in, just like in an actual cathedral. Um, you go into these stores where you're met by an acolyte for the business and you see the advertisements, which are icons that tell you, hey, if you just buy this product, you'll be happy and young and attractive and all these other things. And so we have we have sort of conceived the consumer experience as a religious one. Not only that, but I think uh, since he's written that and, and the shopping mall has sort of died, I mean, you think about where does the market exist? It used to be you would have to go to the grocery store or go to the shopping mall, but now everything is in our homes, right? Um, I, can, uh, I can order groceries from my phone. I can get Amazon to deliver anything to my house in a day or two. Um, so it really has, uh, has caused us to think about ourselves purely as consumers.
0: And I think what our guest speaker, or who we'll interview, is going to talk about is there is this breakdown and disconnection among us because of this global capitalist system between production, product, and producer. And so these three Ps are, there's this breakdown where when I, when I buy a product I don't understand who produced it or the production process or really the product itself. I can just buy it from Amazon, never having held it or seen it or understood it in kind of a more tangible sense of knowledge. And that type of consumerism that we're so disconnected really creates in us this insatiable desire to have more and more and more. It feeds into uh, this, this notion that I just want to own possessions. We're beyond materialism into consumerism, right? Materialism would be I need a bunch of stuff. Consumerism is I just need to actually have the transaction of purchasing something else. I I joke and say, you know, there's no better joy than seeing that Amazon box on the front steps of the house. While that's kind of funny, and yeah, many days when I drive home and see the Amazon box, I get excited. But as soon as you open it and you want to go order something else, there's that hit of who knows what chemical it is in the brain that you you just enjoy opening something that's the consumerism and 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 that fits into capitalism so i find it very interesting that a lot of pastors priests will critique the consumerism that is so inundated in much of american society culture most of us are consumerists to the nth degree without really recognizing it but there's kind of a failure to see that the the larger economic system has helped set that up and has taught us to pursue that end of consuming products and being disconnected from production, product, and producer.
1: And I think a lot of the... I think a lot of sort of cultural diagnoses can come down to this particular facet of who we are. We are consumerists, and so we want to... Um, sort of tailor every aspect of our lives accordingly you know so this is I think what enables people to get married thinking they'll be happy and when they realize you know maybe if this isn't the perfect relationship that I thought it would be I can just get a divorce and then find someone new who I can plug into this um, into this vision that I have for what will make me happy um, so something like no fault divorce I mean I really think that is a sort of consumerist uh, way of of reorienting our understanding of marriage, another example, I think, would be abortion. I think abortion is the epitome of a consumerist mentality. And Eugene Mockerer, professor at Villanova University in the Department of Humanities and the Augustinian tradition, says, uh, this political economy of death is the precondition for the emergence of choice as the holy grail of our moral culture. It's neither coincidental nor unironical that the word, so decisive in the legitimation of corporate hegemony, is also pivotal to the defense of abortion. First, both abortion and corporate capitalism are justified in the liberal individualist language of self-ownership and autonomous will. Second, the language of choice obscures and even nullifies the moral substance of the choices made. And third, the alacrity with which choice is now invoked is, I suspect, an indication of how meaningless, and therefore how few, our choices have really become. Abortion becomes more conceivable as a practice, not only when sex is utterly divorced from pregnancy, which by the way is an episode we'll be doing soon, but when the organization of work hampers or precludes the reproductive practices of sex, birth, and child rearing. If we are going to combat abortion, then I would suggest that we appropriate and transform the language of choice and argue that abortion is the hallmark of a culture that forces everything to pivot around the accumulation of capital. We must tie abortion to a political economy that controls our work, warps our practices of love, and compensates with the perverse but beguiling enchantments of commodified freedom.
0: I think that's really good and really spot on to just show that this notion of consumerism as derived from kind of a larger capitalist structure has such far-reaching effects. It's like the tree and the ground. And when you dig up the ground, the roots go so far down that it's really hard for us to not see every aspect of our life from major issues like abortion to other issues. When you buy your coffee, where it comes from, where do your shirts come from? Are they made in a sweatshop in Vietnam? Everything has been touched by... Uh, consumerist mentalities and the separation of production, product, and producer.
1: Now, it's easy, you might say, to criticize capitalism. So what are we supposed to do? And it's also true that the church has shied away from other extremes like communism. So we don't feel quite as much of a need to address communism in this episode. Um, But where does that leave us? Well, one alternative that's been proposed by many in the world of Catholic social teaching, and which we briefly discuss with Brian Carroll of the American Solidarity Party's 22, 2020 presidential ticket, is that of distributism. And distributism is actually the official platform of the American Solidarity Party. So if you want to know more beyond this episode of what that looks like, that platform is something that you might want to consult. We can put that in our show notes for today. But this system is based on the principles of Leo XIII's 1891 encyclical uh, Rerum Novarum and Pius XI's Quadragesimo Anno, which was published in 1931. So this really seeks a a middle ground between the extremes of the kind of laissez-faire capitalism and more extreme iterations of things like communism. By encouraging a wider distribution of ownership to counter concentrated ownership. And I think this is a particularly apt vision for us in our day, given how giant companies like Amazon, Facebook, and others seem to control their respective fields, and then having enough money to, to expand so that they can dominate other industries and push out smaller businesses. So distributism encourages small businesses and co-op-style approaches where the worker actually has a stake in the company itself and the reason for this is that it still respects the right to property so it's not like in a sort of extreme communism where there is no public or private property at all but it also encourages closing the gap between labor and the means of production so it becomes more visible who's making things and those people who make things have a have an actual stake in the ownership of the company that they work for. And of course in doing this we can match distributism with some of those really important points in Catholic social teaching. So you might think of those kind of seven principles that we laid out at the beginning of the season. Well, subsidiarity uh, subsidiarity and solidarity both come to mind here, right? Because subs- in subsidiarity it's preferable to deal with socio political issues at the local level insofar as it's possible and proportionate to the problem. So, distributism doesn't push off production, unless it's something that would be really specialized, to a multinational corporation, but encourages the needs of local communities to be met by local businesses and cooperative programs. And then, relatedly, there's the concept of solidarity. Again, going back to that idea that There's an interrelationality that exists between us, especially within our local communities. So I mean, we might think of bookstores, right? It is so easy to go to Amazon and order any book and have it here in a day or two, but I've also got multiple locally owned bookshops around where I live. And so when I'm ordering from Amazon, I'm benefiting this huge multinational company, and not only that, but I'm taking business away from one of the local bookshops that I could be going to. Um, And so really, uh, if I want to support my local business, it it would be more appropriate for me to go to the local sources.
0: Yeah, and so I think you're touching on a question that might be raised after an episode like this, and that is, all right, so what? What can I do? in terms of trying to affect the economy. I'm not going to run for president. If I did, I wouldn't win. And how could I change this? I think that this movement that we've been seeing in the past, I don't know, a couple decades of uh, eating and buying local is a good start. I think that being invested in your community and the, the economy of your community through local purchasing and through local spending is a great way to get to know people produce products, is a great way to get to know production, is a great way to make sure that the worker is being supported and being um, valued through your dollar. What this means is, going back to the point we made earlier of a sacrificial economy, is it normally costs more money. You are going to spend more money at the local shop, fill in the blank, than you are at Amazon. But that might be the price to pay to help support a, a local economy, a thriving economy, workers down the street from you. And it also gives you the opportunity to get to know people face to face. I know the buzzword is probably not welcomed, but it's more incarnational, right? Oh, yes, Wesley just rolled his eyes at me. In that, in that I mean, you get to be with people, around people, and get to know them and their businesses. You get to um, experience that. I mean... I mean, mean, how great is it to go into just a coffee shop and get to talk to someone who actually loves and knows coffee or a bookstore and knows and loves their books or I'm thinking of just various craftsmen. Um, we, We had a table made for our house. It's a big like nine foot farmhouse type table and getting to know the guy who made it, who brought it to our house, who told us where the different pieces of wood came from and how he wanted to use this here and this there. That is the type of economic system that I think leads to human flourishing and that you and I as just kind of, you know, Joe blows on the street can actually participate in and help with. I don't think we can necessarily do that with everything. There are going to be some things you just have to buy from Amazon. We're not all made of money, but where are those areas that you can actually fit in and um, and support locally or make sure you support if it does come from a different country or outside of the U.S. that it is being done well and sourced rightly. I don't want to take too much thunder from who we'll interview, but but those are some actual practical steps of working towards a distributist model of the economy. Yeah,
1: yeah. I actually just got to do this kind of by accident, and but it was it was really great. And I, I, looking back, am happy with the way this went. I was trying to buy a bike. Um, And one of the problems is not only this time of year as things are getting warmer, you know, people want bikes. And so it's harder to get them. But also COVID really kind of disrupted the supply chain because a lot of bikes come from Europe. So I could not find bikes anywhere. Um, I mean, I could go to a Dick's Sporting Good or Target or something and buy a bike there. But those are big box stores. And usually the bikes there actually aren't very good. We have a couple chain stores. Around here, but that are specialty bike stores, they didn't really have anything. So I had to go to a really local independent bike store. And like the guy that checked me out and that, you know, made sure everything was good with the bike and had constructed it is the guy that owns the shop. So I got to go in and talk to him and I get to go in for a tune up. And so, like, I'm building a relationship with this guy that is much it's much better than if i was just at a big box store like a dick sporting goods or even one of those chain stores where you know i'm being helped by a worker who makes minimum wage who's going to be there for a year or two and then it's going to turn over and somebody else is going to work there so it's kind of cool to to actually see that play out
0: and i think another place where this has really become popular is in the craft beer movement yeah i mean go there meet the brewer support him talk to him why is it you do what you do they want to talk about these things rather than just buying you know the 12 pack or six pack off the um off the aisle at the Kroger or wherever you shop it's there's something more human that can happen in our connection and relationships in terms of how we spend our money and you will spend a little more but maybe that's worthwhile we already spend too much money so at least spend it on the right things that's kind of a philosophy that Liz and I, my wife, are trying to work towards is spend money on the right things, not on a bunch of not right things, yes. not yes. stated well. But that's, that's, I think that that could actually lead to a more fulfilling life for us, for the worker, for who we're supporting. And if everyone got in on this, then it would add to a better global economy. So here we are, the Sacramentalist podcast to change the world.
1: That's right. Order your paper from Dunder Mifflin, not Staples.
0: Yes, isn't that see that's that's absolutely right. That's been the goal of this podcast. Order from Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> Listen to the sacramentalists, not all those big name theologians. You don't need that. you don't know them exactly exactly. that's right. that's right.
1: so I think at the at the end of the day to kind of wrap up our our discussion, uh, there are kind of a few layers that we can consider as we're as we're wrapping it up, right So first. We do have to engage our imaginations to push for changes in our current arrangements. How can we make the world a better place? What does a sort of uh, more ideal future look like and what can we do to push us forward in that direction? However, beyond imaginative exercises, we need to bring real changes where we are. So what does it mean for us to treat customers, employees, tenants, et cetera, in a more humanizing manner, based on what our vocation is and, and our various circumstances. In effect, we need to be the change that we want to see in the world. And this happens, really, no matter what economic system we find ourselves in. I mean, we can talk about, in theory, what we would need to do in order to become a distributive society or, or whatever, but what can we do in the here and now? And, and a lot of those suggestions that you offered, Father Miles, I think are really helpful
0: in, the, in that regard. And then I think also just recognizing that the system that you've grown up with, which for most of us, I assume listening is some version of capitalism, it, to recognize that it is not necessarily the most Christian system. I think the phrase that you keep using is being suspicious and, and recognizing the suspicions or maybe this isn't everything, not everything in the system aligns fully with scripture. There's always the scriptural critique to be brought in. And I think that's good and Okay. I mean, I'll be the first to say that I think in the current systems that we've seen come up in the world, um, capitalism can do all right. We need to be suspicious and it can go certain directions. And I'm not super down on it necessarily. I think a distributist model might be a better corrective to it. So don't, don't walk away from this thinking that, you know, at least for me, that I'm some sort of communist ready to overthrow, you know, everything. But... That there is a suspicion and that that suspicion for me, especially as a priest and a pastor, is how is it forming and shaping you in your soul? And if you don't think that living in a capitalist society is forming and shaping you, then listen to our next episode or read James K. A. Smith's book or um, maybe just some of the things we've talked about in light of consumerism and trying to think long and hard about how all of us are intertwined and connected in systemic consumerism.
1: I think I think it helps if we if we begin to to think theologically first, <laughs> but culturally we don't do that. Um, and I think probably people who listen to this podcast are more inclined to to do that. But um, culturally we need to. I mean, there are many people in the church who don't think theologically first. You know, uh, theology is sort of a, a secondary or tertiary consideration for them. Um, and so if we, if we really encourage people to do that, um, I think that, that might help those changes become more possible.
0: I, I definitely think so, and I think that going back to our very first point is the theological reflection, and that is, how do we build an economic system which values the person? And as we've said in this series, really the pro-life concepts are what drive all of Catholic social teaching and should drive all of our morality and ethics. Yes. And so I think that brings us um, to the pretty much to the end of our episode, and so we'll move on to our favorite segment, everyone's favorite segment, and that is Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. Father Creighton, take us away.
2: Welcome to another installment of Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. Today, we're going to be continuing our mini-series on Fathers and Mothers in the Faith. Today's episode will focus on Mother Kate and the Sisters of St. Savior's Priory. Catherine Ann Edgerton Warburton, later known as Mother Kate, was born on the 24th of August in 1840 and died in October of 1923. Her father was a priest, and her grandfather was a notable supporter of the Catholic movement in the Church of England, named Roland Edgerton Warburton. Catherine grew up surrounded by notable clergy in the movement because of her grandfather's piety and enthusiasm. Catherine wrote in her memoir that she was 17 years of age when she felt the call to religious life. Kate, deeply committed to her vocation and on fire for helping the poor, entered the Society of St. Margaret at East Grinstead in 1858. The Society of St. Margaret had been founded only a few years before by the famous John Mason Neal, who also served as chaplain to that community. Kate's desire was to work with the poorest in the slums of London, In that very year, she arrived at East Grinstead. Father Neil undertook a mission to work in London, and Kate was one of those who were sent with him. After working in the slums of Soho for three years, ministering to those on the edge of society and in some of the worst conditions possible, she went back to St. Margaret's and took her life vows the day after her 21st birthday, on the Feast of the Annunciation, in 1861. The mission at Soho was withdrawn, and in 1866 she returned to London to begin a new mission in the East End at St. Augustine's Parish in Hagerston. This community would be the field of her labors from 1866 until her death in 1923. The community experienced change and fluctuation over the next few years, and a number of sisters became Roman Catholics, leaving only Kate and two novices who were quickly professed. Soon, she and her sisters were entrusted to another famous Anglo-Catholic priest, Father McConaughey. In 1870 came the smallpox outbreak, which lasted until 1871, Mother Kate and her sisters risked their lives constantly nursing the sick and dying, feeding the needy, working 24-hour shifts in the temporary hospital, cleaning homes, and changing bedding. By the summer of 1871, the sisters had become a beloved part of their community and were cherished by all its inhabitants. After much work and time, A purpose built convent rose in 1888. Sadly, after so much work and help, Father McConaughey didn't live to see its completion. Mother Kate's years of love and Christian faithfulness entrenched her in the community of Hagerston. She spent every ounce of her life bringing the good news of Christ to her people. She labored for them and with them, unconcerned with the cost and unconcerned for her own safety. She was a triumph of monastic faithfulness, and she embodied the Christian conviction that we sacrifice for others, that we serve our fellow man. I pray more will follow in her footsteps, and that a monastic revival is in our future. Because I think in some ways, as we, with this season of the Sacramentalists, continue to learn about Catholic social teaching. The monastic vocation is one which really does highlight the church's teaching about our common brotherhood, about care for the poor and the needy, and about spreading the love of Christ. And Mother Kate is a fantastic example of that love. God bless you, and remember, more lace, more grace.
0: All right. We're back. Thank you, Father Creighton. Let's move into what we're into. Father Wesley, what are you into?
1: Yeah, so I've been into a novel called Love in the Ruins by Walker Percy, and the main character is named Tom Moore, or Thomas Moore. uh, Maybe you're familiar with that name. And he is a doctor who creates this invention called an ontological lapsameter, and it 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 basically is a is like a stethoscope for the human soul and uh it's it's a fantastic book um it's it's a little dated as far as i think it was written in the early 70s um but he's very prophetic in the in the sense that the things that the doctor notices as he uses this stethoscope for people's souls are a lot of the same problems that we see today like he basically can he basically sees the world as incredibly divided. Um so the liberals uh suffer from things like uh like impotence and um and uh and depression and the conservatives suffer from anger and constipation. Um and so anyway, so he but but everybody sort of fits into these two groups and um it's a it's a really creative kind of wild book, but it's uh it's really enjoyable. I really really liked it.
0: The constipated conservative. New band name. <laughs> called it. All right. Um, Well, what I've been into is a new baby. My wife and I welcomed into the world on the 8th of April, our second child, a daughter. Her name is Anastasia. Her middle name is Mead, M-E-A-D, and that's not necessarily named after (laughs) the alcoholic beverage. My mother-in-law's name is Mead, and it's a family name, and so we wanted to name her in honor. Of that heritage so Anastasia but it's also but it's also not not named after the beverage it's also not not named after me which I've mentioned on the on the podcast I do make so uh it it pulls multiple um multiple meanings as well as the name Anastasia she was originally due Monday Thursday so we thought maybe she's a few days late she might actually come on Easter that would be cool Anastasia means resurrection so I like that meaning I also like the Gregorian Canon and Saint Anastasia of Rome is mentioned in the Gregorian Canon. So that's pretty cool. And then speaking in this episode of communism and why I'm not a communist, I can always remember uh, Anastasia Romanoff, which is if you watch the Disney movie, Anastasia, the the prince of Tsar Nicholas, or the the daughter princess of Tsar Nicholas II, pray for us. So it's got multiple meanings, just like it all. Hickson just means Hickson. I didn't have a choice on that one. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. So as always, dear listeners, if you like what we're doing, we do ask you to help other people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. If you haven't done that or wherever you get your podcast, share us with your friends. Uh, If you want to continue the conversation about this episode or about previous episodes, follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. You can always support us over at Patreon for 5 bucks a month. You can join what we call the Communion of Patreon Saints, and that would also give you access to upcoming events, as well as our Discord server, where we go into more depth about these issues, as well as anything else that you want to talk about. And as always, email us with your feedback or show ideas, which we do need, because this season is coming to an end. So if you have show ideas, please let us know at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. And as we've been doing this season, we will conclude with the prayer for social justice. Father Wesley, will you pray for us?
1: The Lord be with you.
0: And with thy spirit.
1: Let us pray. Almighty God, who has created man in thine own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom, help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice among men and nations, to the glory of thy holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord.